So welcome, everyone. Are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. That's true, but all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of... And coming up, that iconic little vagabond, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Long ago, cop to the uh, shameful truth that we are not American. Not being one, I, I can't be certain if actually being an American is the absolute delight that it appears to be from the sidelines. But I'm sure there's no other country. I'm totally certain that that just I don't know how to say it. It just evokes so much, even just in the word itself, the ubiquitous American dream for example, or like just scan IMDb and count the movie titles that contain American, like American Pie, American Gangster, American Beauty, American History X, American Psycho. It feels like it can stand up to anything. It can modify any noun. You know, there could be future movies like American Toilet Brush or American Elbow or the one I'm looking forward to the most, American American, where Tom Hanks stars as a man with split personality. He's a woke women's studies professor by day, a MAGA supporter by night in theaters 2024. Like, can you imagine something similar for Canada or Belarus or Norway? My personal favorite American notion, though, has to be the great American novel. There's a long list of classics already written, and there is an even longer list of aspirational hopes, weirdos saying, yeah, I'm going to retire and pen the great American novel. But if we can trust Ernest Hemingway, if he is to be believed, all of this, the great American writing, the great American novel starts and ends with this Mark Twain classic, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. American American. I'll uh, definitely make sure not to miss that one. But... No kidding aside, yeah, you're right. The great American novel might just have its deepest roots in today's book. Okay, but before I get to this, I I wanted to mention one thing about what happened last week. So, after we publish an episode, I usually uh, go for a run and listen to it just to check to make sure that there are no major issues with, uh, with the production. Okay, well, so here I am in the middle of this run, listening to the, uh, Yahweh episode. And, well, what do I discover? Well, that the answers don't match up with the questions. Now, I have absolutely no idea how that happened. But 
suffice it to say, I, I, I turned around and I sprinted home and got it all fixed as soon as possible. But obviously that didn't help you uh, early listeners. So sorry to you that we had to put you through what must have seemed like an, an well, a totally incoherent and schizophrenic discussion. Anyway, so back to the business at hand. So first, and as usual, a brief summary. Okay, so The Adventures of of Huckleberry Finn is a novel by American author Mark Twain, whose uh, real name was Samuel Clemens, and the book was published in uh, 1884. The story is about Huck, who runs away from his abusive father, and with his friend, the, the runaway slave, Jim, makes a long and frequently interrupted voyage down the the Mississippi River on a raft. During the journey, Huck and Jim encounter a variety of characters and numerous difficulties. The story is often a a critique of societal attitudes of the time, especially racism. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is unique in that it was the first work of American literature to be written in vernacular English. And finally, as, as you said already, Ernest Hemingway said of it that all modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. I have a kind of psychic feeling that you're going to want to talk about Huck and Jim and their relationship, how it develops and what it all means. I just have this kind of, you know, hunch. But before we get there, let's put something right on Front Street. We know there's a particular word in this book. And there's a certain group of people out there, probably smaller than the internet makes it feel. But this group thinks that this book should be shelved, so to speak, because of the somewhat liberal use of this word. Conversely, there's another group out there that hopefully is smaller than I think, that is just absolutely perched on the edge of their seats right now, foaming at the mouth with a say it, say it, say the word kind of energy. Well, welcome to the middle of the road. We are doing neither. Because if there's one thing I learned, honestly, not sailing my raft up and down the old Mississippi, when you try to please no one, you end up pleasing everyone. So tell us about Huck and Jim. Yeah, okay. So that that famous friendship between uh, Huck and Jim. Okay, so what I want to focus on here specifically is Huck's relationship to Jim. So the thing that stands out to me is how Huck not only relies on his own feelings and his intuition when it comes to morality in general, but does so very obviously when it comes to his relationship with Jim. I mean, he says so himself. He relies, he says, on his sound heart. In other words, he just doesn't listen to the, to the mores of society. No, he, he listens to his own conscience. In fact, he even says at one point that he'd rather go to hell than betray Jim. Now, this is pretty remarkable, given the socially accepted systemic and institutionalized racism that that goes on all around him, right? I mean, obviously the community around him doesn't even treat Jim as a human being. But Huck does. He treats him affectionately, and that's in part because he's developed a personal relationship with him even though, of course, he's, he's not entirely free from society's larger, ingrained prejudices. Now, I think that what this partly shows 
is that if we took the time to really see someone, really see them, there's an empathy and a connection that would open up and so change our prejudices. Actually, you know what? This reminds me a bit of what the, what the 20th century French and Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas talked quite a bit about. So, he often used this, this phrase to express his larger ethical view. And it was this. The face of the other. Okay, so what did he mean by this? Well, let's take it apart a bit. So, first of all, by the other, he meant something like, not the other as some sort of abstraction, but rather the personal, intimate other right in front of you. And secondly, by face, Levinas meant the human face, but not one understood in the aesthetic or or physical sense. In other words, not the human face as some sort of object, but rather as someone's living presence. Okay, well, so to have an encounter with the face of the other is to have this um, direct, unreflective encounter with with a vulnerable, exposed other person. I mean, after all, there's nothing more defenseless, naked, and expressive than the face, right? And what's more, because your encounter is so direct and and unmediated, you don't see the other person as belonging to a group or as some abstraction. But instead, you see them as a pure, undeniable, particular reality that simply can't be reduced to some idea. All this is basically just to say that such an encounter involves no judgment. Okay, so now for for Levinas, it's this, this uh, face of the other, this uh, otherness, that turns out to be the foundation for his ethical view. In other words, it's this face-to-face relation or encounter that he thinks inspires ethics in and between two people. That is, when you encounter another's face, when they reveal themselves to you in, in all their infinite particularity, well, all the things that you usually measure people by, like their, their beauty, their wealth, and, and their status, that just recedes into the background. Instead, it's, it's their humanity that you see. And, and this calls out for you to show concern and to love. It motivates responsibility for them and calls for you to um, place their needs before your own. In other words, the other's face drives us to see them in a purely non-self-interested way. Anyway, I I guess my point with all of this is that this seems to be somewhat how Huck sees Jim. That is, he doesn't see him as as the larger mob or community does, in the abstract and as some impersonal object to be controlled. But he sees in that particular face a vulnerability and a humanity that calls for connection and as Huck says, someone who needed help to run away. So, in other words, by helping Jim, Huck gives up what he thinks would be the socially, morally correct thing and obedience to the law. And that's because to hold such things would be to hold to rules that are, that are manifestly in contradiction to the relation he's developed with Jim. And again, what allows him to do this is his face-to-face relation with another human being. In other words, and to go back to what I started with at the outset, Huck acknowledges his sound heart 
over his inherited moral standards. Actually, you know, all this reminds me a bit of what um, Albert Camus said in Matter of Ethics, too. He said somewhere, and to be fair, this was taken out of context a bit, but he said if he had to choose between justice and his mother, he'd choose his mother. You see, for him, ethics has at its root a lot to do with fraternity and solidarity, with um, joining hands with our brothers and sisters. Well, so too with Huck, it seems. To see the person in front of you as a friend is to look at the world in an entirely different way, in a way completely outside of social convention. Having grown up in an alarmingly sheltered, mostly indoor suburban existence as a child, the only connection I had with the Mississippi River was being able to spell it really fast from my uh, fancy book learning. Reckon I still could. Let me give it a try, okay? M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. I can even do it backwards. I-P-P-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-M. But as far as the feeling of cruising the river on my raft, I ain't got nothing to draw on. That said, I, I didn't want to create the headline, Local Idiot Drowns in Polluted River on Homemade Raft. So I decided to go virtual with this thing. Tried the new Facebook metaverse virtual world thing. I plugged in my VR headset into each and every orifice. I learned that's not what you do. Threw away that headset, bought a new one. And there I was on a virtual raft sailing down a virtual river with a disturbingly lifeless Mark Zuckerberg avatar which ironically is completely lifelike. So now that I've had the quote-unquote experience, I have to say it left me with a headache and an impossibly dark void within where I thought my soul was supposed to be. Did I end up missing anything? Wow, that was all very weird what you just said there. But uh, did you end up missing something important in your um, simulated raft experience? Um, I'd say just a little maybe. I mean, obviously in Huckleberry Finn, the raft represents both freedom and an invitation to to self-discovery, to identity. I mean, it's pretty clear right from the start that Huck finds everything about society stifling. He opposes all of it, his family, his community, and his religion. He sees in it just a, just a series of physical and moral constraints. And he sees in it a lot of uh, hypocrisy, too. You know, for example, he's told not to smoke, while at the same time, others take their snuff. He just can't be himself in this world. So, how does he react to all of this? Well, famously, he says that he just isn't going to get civilized, spelled with with an S, not a C. No, he's going to leave all that and journey down the river in order to be free from everything. I mean, he even fakes his own death, too, in order to uh, flee from his abusive father. So, on that raft, he's a blank slate and totally free from the constraints of society. As he says about the raft, he says, um, There weren't no home like a raft. Other places seem so cramped up, but a raft doesn't. You might feel free and easy and comfortable on a raft. There's a sanctity to it. 
So it turns out that being on that raft is at times a, a beautiful and a peaceful experience for, for Huck and Jim. And you know what? Tween does a, a remarkable job of describing these lazy and quiet moments. Some of the most authentic in all of literature, I would say. By the way, um, Twain was a, was a licensed steamboat pilot on the Mississippi, and so knew life on the river extremely well. Anyway, there is, of course, a freedom here in all of this, right? In Huck's case, uh, a freedom from society and all its norms. And in Jim's case, of course, a freedom from slavery. On the other hand, and here's the thing, they can't navigate the river well. Actually, they just drift down it for, for over 800 miles, completely open and, and vulnerable to all the dangers and risks of the unforeseen. They can only go with, with the current, which um, dictates the direction of their raft. In other words, they're pushed by events and not in control of their journey. Now, maybe this is the price you pay when you leave society and decide to live in a state of nature. And by the way, I'm referring here to, to Huck, not Jim, of course, who, who obviously and, and rightly must do whatever he can to seek his freedom from slavery. So, on the one hand, Huck is free from all the inhibitions and prejudices of culture. But on the other, he ultimately falls victim to the whims of nature. Now, this seems to be where Huck finds himself at the end of it all. Nowhere. As T.S. Eliot said, Huck is like the river itself, without a beginning and without an end. Actually, you know, this makes me think of something that Freud famously talked about in his uh, great book, Civilization and Its Discontents. Actually, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Freud liked reading Twain, apparently. Anyway, in that work, Freud gave concentrated attention to the conflict between civilization and personal freedom. And he thought that neither could offer a, a happy solution. In other words, you repress yourself if you conform to the, to the dictates of culture. But if you leave it, the prospects aren't that congenial either. Or another way of putting all this is this. Civilization is, is largely responsible for our misery. I mean, we have all these uh, anti-cultural urges. And we'd be much happier if we returned to our, our primitive condition. Yet, ultimately, to do so would leave us defenseless and without purpose and achievement. Anyway, I don't know. Hey, you know what? Maybe as Hannah Arant says, real freedom just isn't something that can be achieved by, by taking yourself completely out of the social realm, by, by looking for it in a withdrawn self or, or in a, a mythicized state of nature. Maybe freedom for it to be in any sense meaningful at all, must be accompanied by the, by the responsibilities of action in the real world. Maybe the idyllic life on the river, though fun and, and very beautiful in moments, is ultimately just too easy and whimsical to constitute the kind of freedom that gives life meaning and direction. After all, are you really free if... Like Huck, you find yourself, after all is said and done, well, nowhere. 
listening to The Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Martha Nussbaum.